Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. Javits in the 2002 Tales from the Crypt Presents film Ritual, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Dr. Javits. Now, that that I'm completely... Tales from the Crypt? <laughs> I was in. I was in that. <laughs> I was in that. That's a thing. That are you? Thing. Are you at least aware of the existence of Tales from the Crypt? I'm aware. I saw the movie of Tales from the Crypt. In fact, I saw it at a drive-in movie with a girl, who uh, we were going to make out at the movie. And I remember on the way to the movie, she said that she likes to get her own snacks instead of snacks from the snack bar. And she wanted to stop at Dunkin' Donuts first. I don't know if – are you familiar with Dunkin' Donuts, David? I am familiar. It's a very big thing in Boston where I'm And from. it's a very big donut. We stopped at uh, Dunkin' Donuts and she went up to the, the uh, stand and ordered a dozen Bavarian cream-filled donuts. And then she looked at me and said – and what are you going to have? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I'm glad that is your biggest memory of Tales from the Crypt. Well, Not well, the time that you actually appeared in one of their uh, films, but uh, the time that you went to see it with a woman who really loved Bavarian cream donuts. Well, I wanted to do some kissing, but she was kissing on those Bavarian cream filled instead. It was very Indeed. hard to get close to her. Anyway, Stephen, as we're recording this, it is currently uh, April. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of stuff is going on. I read this review in the New York Times about you uh, and the show that you currently appear in called Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, uh, which is right now airing on Comedy Central, and you are very funny in it. Uh, this review was not positive on the show, but it was very positive on you, Stephen, to quote from, quote from Mike Hale here. Okay. To say that Kathy Baker and Stephen Tobolowsky steal the new Comedy Central series Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, isn't quite right. Because it suggests an element of surprise that there was anything else about this occasionally amusing trifle that might have stood in their way. And, and I'll just end quote there. But basically they're saying that you guys are so good that it wouldn't even make sense to say you steal the show because why wouldn't people expect that? Well, that's a beautiful thing to be said. And believe me, as someone who's gotten bad reviews in the New York Times, I will still go over and wash this guy's car, except he doesn't have a car because he's living in New York. But I would say this, David, we've gotten great reviews generally on this show, but, but the best review of all is I've had so many emails from people saying it's the funniest darn show they've seen in so many years. And it is. I mean, to me, I just it tickles my funny bone, Dave. Well, uh, that's great. Congratulations, Stephen, on being such an integral part of a, of a major uh, television show that a lot of people love. Uh, and, yeah, a lot of stuff's going on. You're, you're getting uh, some new roles in TV and film. And uh, our film is going to be world premiering 
uh, in the very near future, The Primary Instinct. We also have a brand new podcast, which airs weekly. You can find it at bigproblemspodcast.com. It was on the front page of iTunes podcast page recently, which I thought was uh, very nice. And if you uh, want, you should tune in and get a dose of Tobo on a weekly basis. Uh, and, and a much more manageable dose than these uh, very heavy-duty Tobolowski Files episodes. And you, you know, David, uh, coming up is my birthday. Did you know that? Yes, I did know that because your birthday is very similar to mine. Uh, I'm, I'm May 20th. You're May 30th, I believe. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, we'll be celebrating. Maybe we'll be able to celebrate my birthday together, if not actually in Seattle Together, maybe we can uh, have a toast over the um, Skype or something. Maybe we will be celebrating in Seattle around May 30th, Stephen. Maybe we will. That would we'll just be leave nice. it at that. Uh, so yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of stuff going on. Hey, hey, Dave, hey, I got one for you. You know, you you are well versed in movies and well versed in so many things. Uh, do you know what else opened uh, recently? Actually, this week, but of course in April. What what else opened just recently? Uh, you know, there's a bunch of major movies, but I think the biggest thing is uh, the start of the baseball season, right? That is absolutely correct, David. And and I don't know, was baseball a big part of your life when you were little? It was kind of big only because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Bostonians take their baseball extremely seriously, especially <laughs> given that we lost uh, at baseball for many, many, many decades. Uh, and then when we won, it was nuts i can't even explain how crazy it was over there so well well for me growing up baseball was like a mythology uh, my brother my dad and i we went to the games all the time but when we were kind of obsessed with sports if i were to kind of be honest my brother paul paul was the architect of my early life and he created games he made up all sorts of games balloon tennis Three Square, The Game of the Oceans, Red Baldy, Indoor Golf, Wild DTV. All of these games gave my mother fits of anxiety. They drove my father to the quiet of his bedroom, which worked except when we played indoor golf. We had to tee off from his bathroom on the fifth hole. All of these contests had different stars of the sport that we impersonated. For example, balloon tennis had Russian hog. Paul played Russian Hog. Russian Hog's defining characteristic was that he said "yet" whenever he slammed a winning point past me. I'm sure it was the only Russian word my brother knew. Indoor golf featured Sam Palmer. We used real golf clubs and golf balls in spite of the protestations from our mother. It was mainly a putting game. We would tee off from different rooms of the house. Mom was horrified as we ricocheted shots off of the mahogany furniture to get a good angle at the cup. Paul decided to redesign the course by adding traps. To that end, he took my sister's favorite doll, appropriately named Dolly, and we used her as a sand trap on the first and second holes. We laid Dolly out horizontally in front of the cup, which made getting a birdie very difficult. You had to bank a shot off of the hallway wall and hope to get lucky. The game purred along until I accidentally beheaded Dolly trying to blast out of the trap. Barbie came in from playing at exactly the wrong moment. She saw what I had done to her beloved doll. You could hear the shrieks of horror for blocks. 
Mom rushed to the scene to see what all the commotion was about. The torrent of tears in the hallway even drew the attention of Dad, who sent Paul and me to our rooms. Mom tried to reattach Dolly's head with masking tape. It wasn't very effective. When I was released from prison, I tried to calm Barbie down by pointing out that at least the masking tape was flesh-colored. That didn't help either. Screaming, crying, Dad came back out of his bedroom and sent me back to prison. My sister never got over that injury. In fact, if I were to mention Dolly to her tomorrow, I would still get the look. The look of the unforgiven. I don't blame her. Even after the Dolly catastrophe, Paul and I still played indoor golf using Dolly's head as a separate sand trap. Whenever we heard Barbie coming home, we quickly reassembled the doll and put it back in its place of honor in my sister's bed. The game that really put my mother over the edge was the game of the oceans. (laughs) This was a wrestling game. Paul and I would tussle on mom and dad's bed. The point of the game was to throw the opponent off of the bed into one of the oceans where he would drown. The sides of the bed represented the Atlantic and Pacific. Over the footboard was the Indian Ocean, and smashing someone into the clock radio and reading light at the head of the bed was deemed the Arctic Ocean. Whenever Mom heard the sounds of struggle from her bedroom, she came a-running and put an end to it. She would say, Stop it! Stop it! I just know one of you is going to break his neck! I could make the case that creating and sustaining all of the various characters in these games is what led me into acting. The characters developed personal histories. They all slept in the district hotel, which was our patio. They had personal problems. When we played Green Ball, one of the stars, Honest Bob Sharp, suffered a nervous breakdown. Thomas Mouse had just been released from a mental asylum. Iron Man McGursky was accused of cheating. Whole narratives were created. My brother kept records. We made a newspaper rarely published, but whose articles were occasionally taped to the bathroom door. They chronicled the goings-on in the district, the good and the bad, corruption, fame, downfall, comebacks, and eventual triumph. It was a complete narrative of civilization. Kids will always find a way to play. My Uncle Ben used to tell me about playing marbles, Dad made baseballs out of old socks and played in the street with his brothers. When I was a grown man with kids of my own, we had a young girl in our carpool that was the child of two former hippies. In some sort of cosmic act of contrition, they decided children needed lots and lots of discipline. They forbade their little girl from going outside on her own, from watching television, watching movies, because the world itself was a harmful influence. I asked her in a quiet moment what she did for fun. She said she stared into space, and when she got tired of that, she played with her thumbs. I saw her recently. She has successfully survived childhood. The only trace of any psychic injury was that she became a lawyer. The desire to play runs through all living things. I bet even paramecia find a way to have a good time with the inappropriate use of their cilia. What defines humanity isn't the game. It's the rules. I think man is the only creature that has goalposts. 
More importantly, we're the only creature that believed that there is something called out of bounds. The genius of my brother was the endless river of rules, points, and penalties he invented to define our sports. There was the Abercrombie rule in ice hockey, the extra penalty shots in big man, little man, and even yardage penalties for kicking the football into a pile of dog dew during the Thanksgiving Classic. The concept of penalty and reward was our way of creating justice in our little world. It's remarkable in that we were too young to really know what justice was, but we still knew. We knew when someone cheated at pickup sticks or if someone hit a line in Foursquare. I used to be the tetherball champion on the playground in first grade at Jeff Davis. Everything fell apart when I entered the school's tetherball championship in second grade and found out there was an entire canon of rules I never even knew existed. There were penalties for palming, ropes, and windmills. I never knew it, but I was the Oakland Raiders of tetherball. I was penalized out of the tournament. I would guess the first words that we say with any regularity as children are mommy and daddy. But I would bet a cat right up there in the top five of the most often used childhood phrases is not fair. There were always controversies in the district about how St. Vincent Mitochondria used his feet in handball or how spin expert Dr. D. Daniels Jones used a serving box. The tide of innovation always challenged the boundaries of fair play. As I got a little older, maybe eight or nine, Paul changed the narrative of games in the district. New rules and penalties were instituted to make sure our little sister always won. At first I found this terribly unfair, knowing I could never win again. But then I began to get the same pleasure Paul did in watching Barbie's continual triumph. He changed his role from competitor to creator, making a world in which there was always a happy ending. It was about as far from reality as you could get, but it was a world I learned to cherish. The kaleidoscope of sports in the district didn't always prepare me for the games that existed beyond the safety of 1621 Water Valet. There was a lot of new construction in our neighborhood when I was a child. That meant we got to play hide-and-seek among piles of two-by-fours and explore skeletal frames of new homes after dark. And occasionally, we would get the mother load, a pile of dirt. There was almost no better place to play, and whoever got to the dirt first made the rules. One of the boys on our street got to the top one morning and declared we were playing pirate. I asked what pirate was. He said it was like king of the hill, but instead of being king when you got to the top, you were a pirate. Well, seemed pretty straightforward to me. I charged up the hill with a full-throated roar. The boy on top pulled up a pitchfork he brought from home and plunged it through my foot. This was a new type of game. This was a game that had real-world consequences. In fact, dishing out the consequences seemed to be the only point to this game because if you won, all you got was to stand on top of a pile of dirt. Blood spurted from my foot. I shrieked and I ran home. There were no broken bones, thank goodness, but I could still see the scar when the sun hits my foot just right. The only fallout was that Mom forbade me from ever playing with that boy again. But I disobeyed. 
One afternoon on the way home from school, I saw the boy in a field with some other boys playing a new game that centered around the misuse of garden tools. I walked into the middle of all of the mayhem and I stopped them. And I walked up to the boy and I asked him why. Why did he stab me with the pitchfork? He looked at me in disbelief and said, I told you we were playing pirate. That's what a pirate would do. He was right. That is what a pirate would do. And the world had changed. Accumulating scars was the new game. Anytime you feel the pain, had you refrain, don't carry the world upon your shoulder. Well, you know that it's a fool who plays it cool by making his world a little colder. I usually walked home from school. It was only about a mile from the house. This was near the end of the seventh grade. I was 12. And besides my textbooks, I always carried a baseball mitt. There was a good chance a game might spontaneously generate in a certain field near Cripple Creek. The field had an elm tree that acted as a backstop behind the piece of limestone we called home plate. There was a dirt road that curved through the outfield. It was a sign of respect if the outfielders had to set up on the far side of that road for your at-bat. I was one of the better players back then. I could field, I could pitch, and I could hit. And I could even place hit. That's when you had the skill to slice or pull a baseball into the part of the outfield where the other players weren't. My brother showed me how to do it. I usually played first base. I always hit cleanup. And I I even got the highest of honors. The other boys gave me a nickname. Tobo. See, the star of the Dallas AAA team at the time was Ray Jablonski. He played in the infield. He batted cleanup like me. The fans called him Jabbo, so I got my nickname Tobo in honor of him. I was not a fan of school. On good days, it was humiliating, and on bad days, it was soul-killing. But I lived for the pickup games on my walk home. There was nothing more life-affirming than when the outfielders on the other team had to call timeout so they could run across the road to take their positions when I came to the plate. On this particular day, counting me, we had 20 boys playing. Now, you only needed nine to make a team, so we had two too many. But we decided on the spot to change the rules. We agreed that there should be four outfielders on each team so everyone could play. And then we changed the rules again and said if a batter could hit the ball over the dirt road in the air and one of the fielders couldn't catch it, it was an automatic home run. This was to redistribute the risk and reward to continue to make the game fair. Our sense of justice was very finely tuned at the age of 12. Of course, I still hit the ball over their heads and into the trees, I trotted around the bases with the humility of someone who had already conquered the world. I usually played first because of my long arms and my beautiful baseball mitt. My mitt was another work of art courtesy of my brother. 
Paul showed me how to build a pocket in the glove. I'm afraid this is something of a lost art in the age of video games, but you put a softball in the center of the glove and you tie it closed with twine. Then you oil the leather for three days. On the fourth day, the glove was resurrected. Paul and I rubbed it down with a cloth to remove any excess oil. We cut the twine and the glove had what we called a pocket where the ball was. Fly balls would just seem to stick in the pocket. Balls thrown to first base in the dirt became sure outs. It was like magic. I enjoyed playing first. You almost never had a ball hit right at you. And there was always time to mentally prepare to play, whether I had to cover first or field grounders to the right side. A lot of time, a lot of time to think, to daydream. While I was out there that afternoon, I thought, how wonderful this is. I walked into a real baseball game. It only takes two people to play checkers. That's easy. It takes 18 to play baseball. That's hard. And I get to do it every day. Thinking back, I don't recall the games themselves, but I cherish that daydream I had on first base. How lucky I was to realize I was lucky. As it happened... That was about the last time I ever played a baseball game on that field after school. The end of the seventh grade, we all went to different junior highs. Our schedules changed. Our homework increased. And there were girls. Oh, dear. Girls. Once girls became girls, it was almost impossible to think of anything else. And I don't blame the girls. They couldn't help being the singular object of our desires. But it was safe to say our daydreams were no longer about line drives through the infield. I don't think the desire to play games morphed into dating. There was far more at stake with a girl than with any game. Except for dodgeball. A boy's entire sense of self-worth was tied into getting a smile in the hallway. It is a historical curiosity that once I turned 13... The pickup games by the creek vanished. From that time on, sports were played in uniform. Girls gravitated to boys in uniform. The feeling was mutual. Boys targeted cheerleaders, majorettes, and girls on the drill squad. There was something intoxicating about those satin vests and white boots. It was terribly provocative. I couldn't believe the city allowed them to march like that in public. Wearing a uniform became a sign of genetic superiority. The only exception to this was the marching band. Even as children, we knew musicians were to be avoided. One of the worst days of the school year was the posting of the names of the girls accepted and rejected from the drill squad. The flood of grief, the tears. It was the end of everything for those not listed. It wasn't the losing that hurt. We all knew what that was. It was the losing in public. That was new. I always wondered why the school didn't handle it the way we handled our softball games. Just change the rules on the spot and let them all play. I certainly wouldn't have minded seeing more girls marching in white boots. Clearly, those in charge wanted us to know things were different now. We were no longer little children. We were bigger, uglier children. The changing world extended to the playing field. 
Justice was no longer dispensed between boys in the moment. It was handed over to referees, older men who wore prison uniforms and always got it wrong. The object of the game was still about achievement, but instead of simply honoring speed and ability, now it also rewarded deception. For the first time, games had an audience of more than parents. They had to build stadiums to hold the crowds. There was a powerful force that pulled to be part of the game. Everything was on the other side of that road. Girls, uniforms, getting your name read over the PA by the principal for acts of valor. I figured I would probably play baseball. I was good at it. I liked the colored socks. One afternoon that last summer before junior high, we were playing a softball game at our old elementary school. I was pitching. I struck a boy out, made a play in the field, came up to bat and hit a home run over everyone's head. A strange man was watching us. He came up to me afterwards and introduced himself. I'm Mr. Fleetwood. I coach baseball over at Brown. When you get there next year, son, you come and see me. The other boys watched in awe. I didn't know it, but I had just been drafted. I began to understand something about my future. It was determined by other people. I had no idea at all that my brother's energies, teaching me how to play, showing me how to make a good glove better, instructing me on how to steal bases and place it, was only preparing me to meet Coach Fleetwood. It all fell into place. Baseball in junior high would lead me to meet some lovely cheerleader or drill squad girl who needed my company, even my kiss, and we would probably get married. After that, you wait until the next doorway opens that leads you to the next uniform. The Army, the Navy, the white lab coat my dad wore at the office, the suit my Uncle Easer wore to court. Even Johnny True Love at the Gulf Filling Station wore a uniform. It was covered with oil, but it was still a uniform with his name Johnny embroidered over the shirt pocket. It was a plausible theory. I liked it because according to these rules, I won the game and I got the girl. The brilliant physicist Richard Feynman said if a scientific law appears to be true all of the time, but then proves to have an exception, you could pretend it's still a law, but in a larger sense you are completely wrong. And the real scientists must go back to the beginning and reassemble the pieces in a new way. The summer of my 13th birthday, the summer of my home runs and placing high in the 8th grade baseball draft, I got a tutorial on what it meant to be the exception to the rule. Dallas had a system of organized summer programs to keep kids sunburned. At elementary schools and parks across the city, there were leagues where you could play softball. You could play paddle tennis on those 110-degree afternoons before weathermen invented the misery index. You could play Foursquare. You could dabble in arts and crafts. And they had a play contest. I liked doing the plays. It was a nice break from athletics. It was a good way to get out of the sun. The summer play program was where I had my first taste of public success. When I was six, I won second best actor in the peewee division for my portrayal of Hansel in Hansel and Gretel. I never knew I got the award because the ceremony was after my bedtime. When I was 11, 
I moved up to the midget division. I won the award as Best Midget Actor as I tore a passion to tatters in Wilbur Takes His Medicine. The summer after seventh grade, I star in The Ghost of Hooten Holler. Our director, Miss Babb, changed the name of the play to The Ghost of Pumpkin Holler because she thought the word Hooten might lead audiences to think the play was too rowdy. Whatever her reasoning, it worked. And we won first place in the junior division. Once again, I nabbed the prize for Best Actor. At this point, I sensed a new trend. I was good at this acting thing. As part of our prize of winning first place in our district, we got to perform with other first place plays from other school districts at the Dallas Theater Center and be reviewed by a real reviewer. Yeah, this must have been a real sweet assignment for that poor fool. At any rate... The reviewer took out his anger at having to be at the theater on Saturday morning by describing my performance as, and I quote, pure pork. I had no idea what this meant. I asked mom. My mother, normally the master of euphemism, searched the vapors around her head for a kind answer, and then she said, sweetheart, it means you're a ham. As Jews, I knew ham wasn't kosher. But as non-observant Jews, I knew ham was tasty. In fact, it was one of my favorites. So I filed this in the win column. We had a party at Miss Babb's house that afternoon to celebrate. We drank Pepsi and ate potato chips and ate watermelon. She warned us not to eat anything that fell in the grass because she had just sprayed for chinch bugs. Despite the warnings... I sat on her lawn and ate huge slices of watermelon, and as the juice and seeds dribbled down my chin, I was completely happy. I felt a different kind of success when I hit a home run and trotted around the bases. A home run was a victory of the moment, where eye and hand worked with speed and power to momentarily change the path of a softball. But when I was acting, I felt a bigger victory. I saw the future, shining like the Texas sun, welcoming me to the world. I'm not sure if it was too much watermelon or too much chinch bug poison, but that night I had stomach cramps that woke me up. That was unusual. I ran to the bathroom and... Pause. For a warning to the listening public, I recommend that those of you who are squeamish turn off the sound for about two minutes. Think of pleasant thoughts and keep telling yourself, the body is a wonderful thing. The body is a wonderful thing. I continue. So, I ran to the bathroom and had bloody diarrhea. Well, well, no, that's glamorizing it. I would have been happy if I had bloody diarrhea. I just had the blood. I was bleeding internally. I ran and woke up mom and dad with my horrifying announcement. They both hurried down the hallway with me. Mom showed more concern than usual. For Dad, it was something different. He was quiet. His face went blank. It was unreadable. Now I imagine he was mentally seeing the pages of his medical books and not coming up with anything good. What made it worse was that this was not a singular event. I bled the next day. And the next I bled every time I ate, every day, for the next two years. I went to specialist after specialist, 
Dad was terrified I had cancer. I would hear Mom crying in her room at night. Years later, when she was ravaged with Alzheimer's and she had forgotten so much of our life together, Mom still remembered those years when I was sick. When I visited Dallas, I walked with her to the park and told her stories, partly for amusement and partly to see if I could help her find a needle in the haystack. I mentioned some of the trips to the doctors when I was 13 and 14. Mom stopped, shook her head. She took me by the arm and said, Those were the hardest years of my life, Steppy Doors. We were so afraid we were going to lose you. The doctors were puzzled. The conclusion was that somehow I had lost part of the lining of my intestine. My current theory is that it was either the chinch bug poison or a severe case of post-show letdown. None of the doctors I saw were sure of the extent of my problem. There was one common denominator— Eating started the peristaltic action, which did more damage, which kept the lining from healing, which is why I bled every time I ate. The solution was no solution. Quit eating. My diet changed. I couldn't eat fat or sugar, so cake and ice cream were out. For a 13-year-old, that was close to the end of the world. Fritos, which I considered one of the four basic food groups, were out. The doctor said I couldn't eat salad or raw vegetables. They were too hard to digest. My diet was whittled down to popsicles and rye bread. I augmented this with pills, all kinds of pills, all day. I had no idea what they did. They didn't change anything, but I took them as an act of faith. It wasn't just the food that changed. The doctor said, no sports. So football, basketball were gone. Baseball was gone. Tobo was gone. But life has a way of breaking through, especially when you have a brother like Paul. He invented more games. We shot baskets after school at Jeff Davis. It was a game he called Big Man, Little Man. Paul was the big man. I was the little man. The game always started with our team down by one with 10 seconds to go. Paul would clown around dribbling for eight seconds, then throw me the ball for one last shot. So I always had a chance to win the game in the last second. We played new games with a flock of new fictitious characters from across the globe. There was Alagupta from India, Shambhagangi from Africa, the Muscler from Cincinnati, Ishiban from Japan, even Barbie played, and assumed the identities of Haroldine Merriweather and B. Topples. We had an entire world within our four walls. When the three of us played, our goal was the same as it was from the beginning. Paul, and now I, would always try to bend the rules so Barbie could win. Paul shared so many things with us growing up. His kindness, his patience, his intelligence. But now I see the rarest gift he gave us was victory. I transitioned from being sick to having a condition. Fear is constant when you have a condition. You realize most people look for comfort in the status quo. Well, that is gone when you have a condition. Your dread of the everyday comes with the morning paper. When you have a condition, you're always on the verge of having that be your mirror. You are the sick kid. 
The seductive thing about having a condition is that you always have a secret. Secrets are powerful. A secret is a reality that masquerades as the only reality. I lost weight. This happened at the same time I was growing taller, turning me into a human asparagus. This had ripple effects. Mom felt it was foolish to buy clothes if I was just going to grow out of them, so I had no clothes. I wore the same two pair of pants and the same three shirts for three years. It might as well have been a uniform. Internal bleeding, nearsighted, acne, and a wardrobe accented by white gym socks. What a catch. I stood about a million miles away from the life I imagined a few months ago playing first base in my fancy baseball socks, hitting home runs, dating a cheerleader, and getting a pat on the butt in the hallway at school from my new best friend, Coach Fleetwood. I didn't have the courage to look at the pieces of me that I had left. And if I did, I didn't have the imagination to put them together into a life that was normal, let alone pleasant. The problem with a rapid decline is that you remember how much you've lost. Fear eroded my vision. There was no hope of change on the horizon. In someone older and wiser, this would have been a recipe for catastrophic depression. But for me, I still thought the future was determined by whoever opened the next door. At the beginning of eighth grade, the door to my social studies class opened, and she walked in. Her name was Julie. She sat in front of me in Miss Wester's class. Miss Wester explained that social studies was the same thing as history, which made me wonder why they changed the name. But my thoughts drifted from Miss Wester's opening monologue to this girl in front of me. What was it? I think it was her perfume. It made me dizzy. Although there was no official polling data on the subject, Julie was arguably the most popular girl in school, with cause. She was beautiful, dark hair, dark eyes. Sometimes she wore purple eyeshadow that could make you feel very nervous. But these intimidations were offset by her vivacious laugh that seemed to come from the ground itself. And her laugh always put me at ease. She was on the drill squad. So she wore one of those uniforms that looked like a modified tennis outfit with white boots. At football games, her outfit was completed with a little hat like a stewardess, clipped onto her bouffant at a rakish angle. I usually only saw the back of her head as she sat in front of me. But believe me, that was enough. There was only one dance for the eighth grade, and for some reason I felt compelled to ask Julie to that dance. I was no fool. I knew, being the most popular girl in school, she would definitely be asked by some equally popular guy, like the captain of the football team. The dance wasn't until mid-January. 
It was early September. That's four and a half months. My only hope was that if I could show my ardor with the ridiculously early invitation, she would have to consider saying yes. I knew if I stood any chance at all, I would have to ask quickly. Now, this was not a good plan on several levels. One, it was all based on fantasy. I didn't know Julie. I had no real-world experiences with her that would warrant my assumption that she would go to the dance with me, regardless of my acne and my internal bleeding. And number two, I couldn't dance. If she accepted, we would get there and I wouldn't know what to do. This was 1965, the beginning of the era of fast dancing, men and women dancing separately. Horrifying. I would have been bopping around, desperately looking around the gym for someone who looked like they knew what they were doing. Probably the captain of the football team, who she would probably go to the dance with anyway. Side note. Even today, most men can't fast dance. Men view almost everything in their lives as a form of aerobic activity. Women always look good dancing because of the breast-hip counterbalance, whereas men look like they're training to be Navy SEALs. You can even tell the guys who do step aerobics when they dance. But despite reality, I made a pact with myself that I would ask Julie that month. It would be hard to turn someone down almost a half a year before an event unless you hated them. Despite my determination, day after day went by with no invitation. Every day I saw her back, the stylish A-line dress, the gorgeous coiffed hair. A million times I was on the verge of tapping her on the shoulder. I was like someone who was trying to run into a jump rope game of red hot peppers. Should I ask her now? Should I ask her now? How about now? Or now? In class, Miss Wester said she was going to spend the first few weeks on what they called the age of exploration. Historians have defined this time from around the 14th to the 17th centuries and the efforts of primarily the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the English to conquer the world. Miss Wester said this wasn't a real historical period. It was just easy to label. Miss Wester said that man has always explored the unknown, from early cavemen to modern-day science shooting dogs into space. She showed us some early maps of the known world. One was drawn by Phoenicians, and another a thousand years later at the time of Columbus. The maps were curious. They had several things in common. None of them resembled the world. They were always wrong, and they were always scary. Sea serpents and the edge of nothing were always somewhere in the distance as a warning not to stray too far from home. The oceans had monsters, and the wind personified by a horrible-looking man blowing was always blowing. And yet Columbus still used this map and somehow discovered America. September came and went. Plan B. October. I knew if I didn't ask by Halloween, she would be taken. But I had reason to hope. Julie was more open with me now, more friendly. She would tell me a joke or laugh at one of mine. Some afternoons, for no reason at all, she would turn and ask me how my day was going. And always with that warm smile. Once she turned to me before class and I thought she was going to cry. She looked at me and didn't say a thing. I asked her what was wrong. She tried to smile and said, Nothing. 
I'm just having a bad day. I certainly felt better when we talked. It was better than the raft of 20 pills I had to take every day, but I still couldn't ask about the dance. Halloween came and went, and we were in November. As the days got shorter and the Texas winter began to arrive, I felt lost. I felt like a shell of a man. One day in mid-November, I said to myself, Stephen, I know it's too late. I know she must already have a date to the dance, but you are not a man if you don't ask her today. It's not about the dance anymore. It's about you, my friend. You'll be rejected, but I will never talk to you again unless you ask. She came into class. She sat down in front of me. I was on fire. I was dizzy. I was pale. I reached up to tap her shoulder when Julie turned around. Her eyes were deep and darker than usual. She was upset. She seemed to be scattered as well, and she said, Stephen, I need to ask you something. It's been on my mind for a long time, and I didn't know how to bring it up, but I decided today I would ask. Well, sure, Julie, sure. What is it? Stephen, why do you wear your pants pulled up so high? Some questions don't have a good answer. Something inside of me broke into a million pieces. I answered feebly, I thought the waist of pants were supposed to be at your belly button. Mm-mm. Not always, Julie said, and not with those pants. You need what they call high-waisted pants. I don't know what those are. Neither do I, but these aren't those. Just wear them lower. And then she leaned in and whispered, Or they look funny. Thanks. Sure. In class, Miss Wester was talking about the Aztecs ripping the beating hearts out of their captives. It was good to know that some things never change. I couldn't focus on the details of who was killing who. Julie's long brown hair and shoulders dominated my worldview. The bell rang. We gathered our books. It had to be now. I tapped her shoulder. She turned, Julie? Yes? You want to go to the dance with me? Oh, Stephen, that's so sweet of you to ask, but I already have a date. Okay. But thank you for asking. Sure. And thanks for telling me about my pants. She smiled, and we walked our different paths to the next class. I went home that day and went to my room to do my homework. But I didn't. I just lay on my bed and listened to West Side Story, my favorite record at the time. It was about people dying for love, based on Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare, where everyone, even the ones not in love, seemed to die for love. I was sensing a new trend. At this point, I would be happy just to get the chance to die for love. Mom called us to dinner. I didn't want to eat. But I came out of hiding, sat down with the family, and had a few bites in honor of Mom's effort. I apologized and told Mom I couldn't eat. I left the table and waited for the inevitable, the stomach ache, the bleeding, then went back to my room in West Side Story. A few minutes later, there was a knock at my door. Yes, I said. It was Paul. He came in with a basketball. Stevie, it's time for the night basketball championships. What? Yeah, they made a mistake in scheduling the Eastern Finals of Big Man, Little Man. We have to play at night. But it'll be dark. 
That's why they call it night basketball. I'm sure there'll be some sort of light on at the playground. Okay, sure. We put on coats and sweaters and hats because it was cold enough to make your nose run, and we walked to the school. It was strange walking down the road dribbling a basketball with cars flying past us with their headlights on. We got to the school. Paul was right. It wasn't pitch black. There was one tall light pole that cast giant shadows on everything on the playground. Paul and I looked like we were 50 feet long. We started dribbling to warm up. It was hard to see. The stars were brighter than the rim. Eventually, our eyes adjusted, and Paul said in his announcer voice, I see we have a last-minute substitution. The little man is on the bench, and they've sent in a new player. Well, Jim, we're down by one, and we only have ten seconds to play. Who is it that's coming in? I thought for a second and shouted out, Why, it looks like it's Don Carlos Buell from the University of Mexico. Paul started laughing. Yes, I've heard of Buell, Jim. He has a deadly jump shot. And there's the whistle. Ten. Nine. Eight. And it looks like the big man is dribbling under the basket. Six. Five. Four. Buell is drifting to the top of the key. Three. Two. And the big man passes to Buell. I caught Paul's pass and jumped up and shot it. And swish! I made it! I hit nothing but net if the baskets had nets, which they didn't. Paul was jumping up and down as he continued to announce, And Buell has done it! He's done it! He won the game! That means we go to the quarterfinals, Jim. And so far it's been a tough game. It looks like our boys have their backs against the wall. They're down by one with only ten seconds to play. And nine, eight, seven. Ooh, it looks like Big Man is dribbling to the corner to try a long hook. That's a risky shot. Five, four, three. No, Big Man, no! He's passing to Buell. Paul threw the ball to the other side of the key. I ran over, I got it, I jumped and shot and scored! Through the rim! Again, we jumped in celebration. Paul was laughing so hard it was difficult for him to continue announcing. Why, this Buell has turned out to be a late-season sensation. They may start counting on him in the semifinals. Jim, they played hard, but it looks like our boys are down by one with only ten seconds to play. Wait, wait. Hold on there. It looks like the little man is being benched and Buell is coming in. It's Buell. His late-game heroics have been the story of this tournament so far. And the clock starts. Big man has the ball. Nine, eight, seven. The big man looks like he's going to try a blind shot over his head from the free-throw line. Don't do it, big man. Five, four. The crowd is chanting, Buell, Buell. At that point, Paul threw the ball over his head to the corner near the half-court line. I ran over, I got it, I went up with a 30-footer, and I hit it! I hit it! I banged through the rim, and we won again! Paul held his head. This young Buell from the University of Mexico has lit up this tournament. We haven't seen shooting like this since popping Peter Popovich came into the big leagues. Well, here we are, sports fans. It's the finals. It's a sold-out crowd. We've been outplayed throughout the game, but due to the sterling defense of the big man, we still have a chance. We're only down by one with 10 seconds to go. The crowd is screaming Buell as he runs out onto the court, and the clock starts. And wait, wait, 
What's this? The big man takes a long hook. Paul dribbled into the corner and took a 20-foot sky hook, and it went in. Paul shouted, and the big man scores. Hooray. Well, it looks like we're going to win after all. Oh, no. Wait, what's this? No, no, no. The big man committed an intentional foul. Jim, he wasn't thinking. That's four fouls on the big man. The other team goes to the line with four seconds on the clock. Paul walked to the free throw line, dribbled, and sank the first shot. Well, looks like we have a tied game. If they sink this one, it could be curtains. Paul looked, took a couple of dribbles, and sank the second free throw. Well, our boys have their work cut out for them. Four seconds, no timeouts. The big man is going to try a full court pass. Buell will only have time to catch and shoot. Paul threw the ball into the night sky. And that's four, three, two, one. The ball hit the blacktop and bounced up into the air. I jumped up. I grabbed it and fired it in one motion. It flew through the night and silently passed dead center through the rim. We stood in disbelief for a moment and then started screaming in victory. We won! We won! Paul and I jumped up and down and hugged one another as he announced, The world has never seen shooting like this, ever. Don Carlos Buell from the University of Mexico will always be remembered for his performance in the premier game of the night basketball league. We walked home in the cold, wrapped in triumph. When I went to bed that night, the unfortunate turn of events in social studies class had vanished. All that remained was the brilliant play of Don Carlos Buell. As I drifted off, I thought of Julie. I found out later she was going to the dance with the captain of the football team. That was all right, since I couldn't dance anyway. I was happy enough that I kept my promise to myself. And the next day I did wear my pants lower. In class, Miss Wester talked about the great explorers. As it turns out, Columbus didn't use his maps to find the New World after all. He used the stars. But I still believe your future could be determined by who opens the next door, especially if it was your brother with an invitation to play night basketball. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You are only waiting for this moment to arrive That was Maps of the Ancient World, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, where can we find more of your work on TV this week? Well, I think that would be big time in Hollywood, Florida. And if you're looking for me on the Internet, the best place to go is to stephentobolowski.com. There you'll find all of my handles for Twitter and for Facebook and my email address, which is stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I spell that. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. 
And find our other podcast at bigproblemspodcast.com. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you guys later. Adios.